There is an entity that permeates every aspect of our existence. Into every moment of history, it is altogether real, certain, constant. Yet, you can't see it, hear it, touch it. And tangible, but we feel it, the way it radiates out into the pulse of our daily lives. Its impact is everywhere. It shows up in physics, the amount of energy transferred over a unit of time. It's revealed in the incandescence of the light, electrical current moving from source to ball. It's demonstrated at the sporting event, when an athlete sends a ball crashing through a net. But it also wields its authority elsewhere, in the advances of armies as they pursue conquest. It fuels the verdicts of rulers, governments, and courts as they seek to make a way of life normal in society. It's unleashed in the storm of revolution, layered in the rhetoric of tyrants who assert their will over others. Its abuse fuels the cries of the marginalized, spurring on both protests and rebellions. It is wielded by all, from the rich and powerful to a small child taking their first step. It has the capacity to take objects, people, ideas, concepts, beliefs, ethics, and history from here to there. Its name is power. Power, defined as capacity or ability. When we act in power, we make a difference. We make a change. Entangled in every area of life, power goes by many names. Authority, control, force, strength, rule, energy, influence, leadership. Power crashes into every sphere of our life, reminding us of what we already know, that power is unavoidable. So that begs the question, what are we to make of power? How should we think of it? In what ways are we designed to wield it? Should we? We've seen the good that has been done by our ability to act, the progress and advancement that has come about because of the exercise of power. But we equally know that for its unlimited potential to create order, beauty, and growth. The possibilities of its dark side are just as vivid. The same power found in nuclear reactors, a power that's stable, efficient, and capable of sustaining life for many, provides the fuel of nuclear warheads that decimate cities and eradicates all living things. For all these reasons and more, our relationship with power must be examined and explored. Does it exist to be freely unleashed in a visceral demonstration of our control, our rights, our desires, our raw power? Is the endgame to vanquish others in a pursuit of authority, dominance, and greatness? Or is power intended for something else entirely? A gift given by an all-powerful creator, a generative and sustaining ability we possess to bring order, beauty, thriving, and life to the world? Which vision of power will move us from here to there? All right, well, good morning, everyone. Uh, again, welcome to Grace Church, Medina East Campus. Just really thankful that we are all here today. Uh, it is always uh, an honor and a privilege for me to be able to stand here and communicate some of the things that uh, God has been teaching me in a number of areas of life, and to be able to do that with you is just really, really special. Uh, it's really cool to be able to gather here as well, and if you're checking us out online, to do that in that way too. Uh, just to be able to hear from God's word together, we believe that the Bible is the way that God communicates his heart, his message to us, his desires for us. 
and the life he wants us to live. And so to be able to rally around that and hear from God together is a special thing. But also to be able to just get a, like a physical witness to see uh, the work that God by his Holy Spirit is doing to galvanize a community of people together around Jesus, around the gospel. It's a really cool thing to be able to see when we gather on a weekend. So thank you again for being here. Uh, my name is Seth. I am one of the pastors here at the Medina East Campus. And uh, Probably from the bumper video that we just saw, maybe we should have given you all popcorn as you walked in here, bags of popcorn, because it was nothing short of uh, a theatrical flourish. <laughs> uh, you, could see on the, you could see on the bumper video that played before uh, I walked up here this morning that we have been in a series uh, that we have been calling Power. And so hopefully from that video that we all watched together, uh, maybe some of the narration uh, as well as some of the images that you saw got us all on the same page with regard to this fact that power is a really relevant and it's a really important conversation, uh, primarily because power exists in a whole host of different areas in our lives and it intersects our lives and interfaces in some really, well, it's no pun intended, powerful ways. And so because we believe that power is a really important conversation, that it matters to us, and it is a day-to-day -day thing that we experience and interact with, uh, one of the big goals that we have in this series with regards to power is to unpack a little bit of where power comes from, how power is leveraged, what are some of the sources of power, the power brokers in our culture, and to look at that. So that's certainly one of the goals. But I think actually we have a bigger goal in mind for this series and that is basically, yeah, not only to look at the way power is exercised and how it shows up in our culture, in our world, our society, but we also, more importantly, want to take a look at what God has to say about this idea of power. Number one, how does God define power? We don't just want to define power in the way the world does. We want to check in with God, the creator of heaven and earth, to see what this thing power is, and not just to be able to define it in his way, but also to better understand why this God would hand over such tremendous capacity and ability, this tremendous power to us as human beings. And even furthermore, we would love to explore God's perspective, not only on a definition and the why, but also how, right? How does God desire for us as human beings to wield this power that he has given to us? And so uh, a couple weeks ago, we've been uh, kind of taking a look through the series, uh, some different aspects or different facets of power. And a couple weeks ago, we looked at the relationship between power and authority. In other words, who or what tells you what, or who has the right to tell you what to do with your life. So we looked at the relationship between power and authority. <clears throat> and then last week, Pastor Tony walked us through this awesome passage of scripture that shares with us that if you're a follower of Jesus, there is an immense power and capacity that God gives to followers of Jesus to, uh, to kind of produce our transformation and to help us to grow into the image of Christ to become more and more like Jesus. And so this week, we are going to examine another facet or another angle toward power. And of course, as you can see on the screen behind me today, we want to talk about power and rights, power and rights. Now, some of you, I already know, like we know that rights, this notion of rights in our world can be a really hot button and a potentially contentious topic, can it? Some of us are already maybe getting a little nervous as to where's this guy on the stage going to take me here with regards to power today or with regards to rights today. And so uh, it's definitely a hot button and a contentious topic for sure. And so what we don't mean by rights, obviously, is the kinds of turns that we make in our automobiles. No, instead, we are talking about things like our privileges, 
our prerogatives, our freedoms, things like our liberty, and even those things that we feel that we are entitled to, our entitlements. And so I thought it would be a good idea because we can get really confused and this can get really contentious really fast. I I thought it would be a good idea to maybe, to right off the bat, uh, give us a definition, a kind of meta definition of rights, a meta definition of rights. Now, the definition that I'm going to put up on the screen that is going to hopefully guide our com- help guide our conversation today is not my own definition. I pulled it together from a number of different uh, definitions that I found as I was studying and researching and preparing for this sermon today. So here's kind of, uh, of after amassing all that data, here's kind of what I came up with with regards to a working definition of rights that we might utilize for our conversation today. So I think that rights are the justification, or since rights is plural, justifications, but it is a justification, like legitimacy, for exercising power. So it gives us the right or the legitimacy to exercise power toward a couple of, I think, really important ends. The first is this, to exercise power, like we have the right or we are legitimate to pursue and exercise and wield power to either pursue the life we desire So in other words, if we were to close our eyes and if we were to think about the vision of life that we want to pursue, who we want to become and get there, that rights are our ability, we reserve the right to exercise power to pursue, to go from here where we are today to pursue and exercise power to get to there, the person that and the life, the person that we want to be and the life that we want to apprehend. But I think what's interesting is when you think about rights, not only are they justifications for exercising power to pursue the life that we've envisioned for ourselves, I think they're also the legitimacy to exercise power to preserve that life, especially when we perceive that that life and that vision for what we want for ourselves might be threatened or that might be at risk. All right, so even as we begin with maybe hopefully a helpful working definition like this, I think, again, we have to take a step back and we have to acknowledge that this issue of rights is an absolutely massive conversation that we have nowhere near the space today to cover all the nuances and the intricacies of this topic. And I think this is because we know something. I think we know that rights are very sophisticated and profound things. And because they are profound and they're so deeply seated, that's the reason why there could potentially be a lot of conflict and a lot of tension over this topic or this issue for sure. I mean, let me ask you, where exactly would the best place to begin a foray into um, our rights, where would be the best place to begin as we think about that topic? Because if you think about it, we could begin in a host of different places. Uh, We could start, uh, the best place to start might be by examining the history-spanning speculation about human rights that have come from the philosophers and their musings and their conclusions and the truth claims that they've made as they've thought about human rights and what they are. And so this would be to comb the depths of at least some philosophers in the last 500 years that have influenced who we are as Americans and how we've structured our society and how we perceive or understand rights to be. This would be to examine uh, philosophers, great philosophers like John Locke 
or Jean-Jacques Rousseau, the Frenchman, or even our very own American Thomas Jefferson, one of our founding fathers. Now, what's interesting, if you comb the depths as to some of what these guys were saying, these men, you would realize very quickly that these men have so shaped our view of rights, even here in the 21st century in America, that in many respects, we don't even know it, but we automatically almost accept the conclusions that they were arriving at almost 500 years ago as truth. And so these are the guys that have largely concluded and have contributed the seeds of their ideas made their way into statements that we as Americans know about rights, especially as we find that in places like even our Declaration of Independence, right? And so what, what does Thomas Jefferson write there as a result of some of the conclusions of the philosophers that influenced him on political right theory? Well, he says, we hold these truths to be self-evident, In other words, Jefferson is saying that any person with half a brain can see that the way we think about rights is very true. Well, he says, we hold these truths to be self-evident. What? That all men are created equal, wonderful, and that they are endowed or given or blessed or gifted. They are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable what? Rights. And then among these rights are things like life, the life that we want to pursue, and liberty and the pursuit of of happiness. So now listen, as invigorating as that would be to study the dynamics of right theory in our culture and world, well, maybe only two of you would think that would be invigorating, but I certainly think it would be invigorating, right? But as invigorating as I think that would be, I have actually concluded that the vast majority of us operate in our day-to-day lives not out of definitions of rights that come from the sterile halls of the academy and the philosophers, But instead, I think that most of the time, what we think intuitively and subconsciously about rights and how we operate those in our daily lives, what we believe about rights doesn't come from the sterile halls of the academy, but rather from the dirt of the elementary school playground, right? Think about it. Everything that you believe strongly today, you learned from the elementary school playground. I mean, think about it. What did we learn about the social hierarchy if we didn't pick teams for kickball? That's how we learned how the world works in its structure and hierarchy. What what, what did we learn about economics and commerce and trade? But when we sat on the grass at recess and traded baseball cards and bartered. And what did we learn that we still employ today about pursuing a significant other or a spouse but playing tag? I mean, that's what we did on the playground. We ran after girls that we thought we were cute. And when we tagged them, we were like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I did that. We learned it all. And so here's the thing, when it comes to rights, when it comes to rights, I'm just convinced that underneath it all, underneath it all, we're still saying the same things that we said to Alan Marzak, the bully, right? We all said it to Alan. We, st- we still said the same things that we did to Alan Marzak on the elementary school playground. You can obviously tell that I don't have any PSD when it comes to my elementary school bullying experiences. By the way, Alan, If you've somehow found your way out on YouTube and you're listening to this, you should not be offended. You ruled the roost, bro. You were the authority. You were the power. You were the man. Thank you very much. So, but listen, I think we're still saying the same things that we said to bullies on the playground when it comes to rights. And I think it goes something like this. Ready? You can't tell me what to do, right? Come on, we're Americans, right? You can't tell me what to do. And typically, this was either followed by, or if you were really feeling saucy that day, it might have been preceded by close cousin statements, something like, it's a free country, or things like, 
I can do what I want. You can't tell me what to do, Alan. Stuff it in your face. It's a free country. I can do what I want. And sometimes you would pull out the really potent uncle phrase, which would be, I'm telling my mom. I'm telling my mom, right? But think about this for a second. Honestly, honestly, this, how spot on is this, right? Guys, what is the polarization that we have experienced in our world in the last several years but a reflection that we are still thinking in these ways about our rights, that we are still insisting on preserving the entitlements that we believe we have in order to protect the life that we want to live. I mean, isn't, isn't most of the division that we've experienced in our world and in our culture here, even in America, a direct byproduct of our deep fear that some person some group of people, or even some system of thought is going to rob us and take away what we feel like we rightfully deserve. Now listen, what I don't mean to imply as I say these things, I don't mean to imply that every appeal to rights or that every desire to preserve and to defend our rights or the rights of others is automatically bad, wicked, or evil. I don't mean to intend that at all. As a matter of fact, I have, <clears throat> I have a lot of respect for uh, our first responders and for those who have served in our military here in the United States. I mean, those are the people who have, in many respects, laid down their rights. They've sacrificed their freedoms in order that we might enjoy the freedoms and the rights that we have. And I also don't think for a second that those uh, that we've seen throughout our history who have been leaders of like rights causes in our society, I think about especially the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s. I don't think for a second the leaders and the champions of those movements were operating out of a you can't tell me what to do mentality, not for a second. As a matter of fact, uh, those leaders and those champions of that kind of justice were all about bringing a genuine restorative justice to people who were actually literally living on the margins of our society. So I don't think for a second that all appeals to rights or the defense of those is bad or wicked or evil. But, but because this series is primarily about, I think it's primarily about what God would have to say about the exercise of our personal power, our individual power, and therefore how we would think about exercising our individual rights, I do think it's important to start asking some honest questions. Questions like, well, according to God's perspective, what does he think ought to motivate the exercise of our rights? What does God say about that? Does God really want us to appeal back to a you can't tell me what to do, I can do what I want mentality when it comes to these things? Or, or does God maybe have some different and potentially transformative motivations for us in mind? So uh, what I'd like to do is from here on out, I simply want to go to a passage of scripture that I believe is a profound declaration by God himself made through the Apostle Paul about this very subject, about what God thinks about our rights and what they should be used for. And that passage that I want to take you to is 1 Corinthians 9, chapter 9, verses 1 through 12. 1 Corinthians 9, 1 through 12. So if you brought your Bible, you can go ahead and start making your way there. If you don't have a Bible, there are some under the seats in front of you. And in those Bibles under the seats in front of you, 1 Corinthians 9, 1 through 12 will be on page 928 in those Bibles. 
So uh, as you're making your way there, I think it's going to be really important for me to uh, set up a little bit of the context that is occurring in this section of this letter that the Apostle Paul writes to a group of Christ followers in the ancient city of Corinth. A little bit of context. So uh, the context is this, round about chapter 8, the beginning of chapter 8 in 1 Corinthians, Paul has shifted gears on the subject or the topic of what he wants to communicate to this church, these group of Christ followers in Corinth, and he has shifted his gears to start talking about a controversy that had developed around the notion of eating meat that was sacrificed to idols, eating meat that was sacrificed to idols. So in Paul's ancient world, in this ancient culture, it was very routine for uh, pagan gods in these pagan temples to take meat from worshipers, to sacrifice an animal. Part of the meat would be devoted to in this communal meal between the priest and the god that the idol represented. The meat would be sacrificed. It would be eaten by the priest as an indication of the worshiper's devotion and commitment to the god that that the idol represented. And then any leftover meat that was slaughtered that was not consumed in that meal was then taken into the marketplace and sold. And so there was actually a very bitter controversy that had begun to develop in Corinth amongst the church, amongst Christ followers. There were actually two groups of people who had very different opinions as to whether the practice of eating this meat at the dinner table that was sacrificed once to an idol was legitimate or not. So you had one group of people in Corinth that were saying, it's totally fine. It's not an issue. We know that we just serve the one true God, Yahweh. We know that. And Yahweh's created everything. It's of no consequence because he created the meat that was uh, allegedly sacrificed to the idol. But it's his meat, not theirs. So we should be able to freely eat however we want. Now, alternatively, the other group said, no, that this practice, this practice of meat eating meat sacrificed to idols was completely out of bounds. And so as Paul looks to kind of weigh in on this issue, what I want you to do is I want you to look at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 8, where Paul offers a little bit of his conclusion on the matter, how the Corinthians ought to think about this really divisive issue. So he says to them, now listen, guys, some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as actually having been sacrificed to a God. And since their conscience is weak, it becomes defiled. He said, but food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better if we do. But Paul goes on. He says, be careful though, little caveat, be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to those weak people. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all the knowledge that you know that every food is fine, If they see you eating in an idol's temple, or I think by implication, eating that same meat in your home, won't that person then be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? In other words, if a person from a formerly pagan environment who saw those meals in the sacrifice as being a commitment or a statement of devotion to that God, how is that person going to reconcile the fact that they're supposed to serve the one true God? They might be tempted to just go back into their old former pagan lifestyle. So Paul says, so this weak brother or sister in that case for whom Christ died is, check this out, by your knowledge, what you know about food is destroyed by your knowledge. So when you sin against them in this way and you wound their weak conscience, check this out. You're actually sinning against Christ. You're like, whoa, that that escalated rather quickly, didn't it? He says, therefore, final conclusion, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. 
Now notice the conclusions that Paul comes, comes to here. And notice it's conclusions, not conclusion, right? Because if you look back in verse eight, what does he say? What does he conclude? Food does not bring us near to God. We're no worse off if we do not eat. We're no better if we do. So Paul says to the Corinthian church in one sense, feel free to eat the meat. Have a party. There's really nothing at stake. No pun intended, right? This is like, eat the food. Tina, eat the food. Eat the food, right? Just go ahead and do it. It's not a problem. But notice what Paul also says as we go further. In verse 13, it seems like there's a little bit of a contradiction, right? He says, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will, what does he say? Never. I'm never going to eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. Now, I don't know about you, but this, and I'm sure this was the case for the Corinthian church, but even for us, we're looking at this and we're like, this seems really confusing. Paul, just answer us plainly. Should the Corinthian church reserve the right to eat this food or not? And sure, we do get a clue that here the rights should be laid down out of preference for the weakness of other people. But if you think about it, if we always lay down those rights for other people who are weaker, quote unquote, than we are, isn't that just a covert form of slavery? I mean, you can imagine some in the Corinthian church hearing things like this, and they would be saying things like, well, some freedom, Paul, right? It sounds more like you're basically telling others how you should run your life, aren't you? And wouldn't that sound more like right infringement rather than, free, rather than freedom? Wouldn't that sound more like people-pleasing? And so with this tension in mind, and I think Paul anticipates that there would be this kind of pushback and confusion, we finally come to our text here in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. This is what Paul goes on to say as he addresses what he likely perceives will be confusion from what he said here. So Paul says this, all right, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you, Corinthians, not the result of my work in the Lord? Even though I may not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you. He says, you are the seal. In other words, the proof, the legitimacy of my apostleship in the Lord. Let me pause really quickly here. Apostleship. This is a big deal here in the Corinthian church. Now, if you were to look back in the first century, apostles of Jesus Christ kind of had a couple different criteria to be called an apostle. First, an apost or apostles were ones who had seen and interacted with the resurrected Jesus Christ. And so if you know, if you've ever read the book of Acts, there are three different occasions where uh, Luke, the author of Acts, describes that Paul himself had met the risen Jesus and interacted with him as he was headed into Damascus to originally persecute Christ's followers who were in that city. So Paul has that box checked. He's an apostle because he has seen the risen Jesus. But here's the thing. People who saw the risen Jesus had believed, these apostles had believed that Jesus, in seeing him and interacting with him, they believed that they had been commissioned by Jesus himself. Uh, we might even say that they believed that they had been deputized by Jesus to take the message of his salvation, rescue, and work out to the wider world around them. So an apostle saw the risen Lord, they felt and affirmed a commission to preach the risen Lord's salvation in the known world, but apostles were also those who didn't just preach via word the message of Jesus. Check this out. Apostles were ones who lived out, 
whose lives and behaviors so embodied the life and the behavior of Jesus that it might be said that if you had interacted with an apostle, you could vividly see the character and the reputation and the goodness of Jesus himself. And so Paul says, man, I might not be an apostle to other people, but he's acknowledging that I took the message of Jesus to you and I preached it to you. I planted you as a church. I helped you grow but I also in my lifestyle modeled the character of Jesus to you. You guys, in your growth in Christ, you're the seal, you're the proof of my apostleship in the Lord. So Paul goes on, he says, now this then is my defense to any of those who would offer pushback, right? To those who sit in judgment on me. Don't we have, as apostles, the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us, as do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas, who's Peter? Or is it only I and old Barney, my good buddy Barney, I and old Barnabas, who lack the right to not work for a living? He continues to go on. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat its grapes? Who tends a flock and doesn't drink the milk? Do I say this merely on human authority? Doesn't our sacred scriptures in the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. Paul's like, is it really about oxen that God is concerned when he wrote this? Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? Yes, this was written for us. Because whoever plows and threshes, whoever does the work and makes the investment should be able to do so in the hope or the expectation of reaping a little bit of that, of sharing in that harvest. Paul says, if we have sown spiritual seed among you, in other words, if we as your apostolic leaders have invested the spiritual seed of the gospel into you, is it too much that we might reap a little material harvest, a little bit of compensation so that we can continue to do this ministry free of charge? Is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? And if others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we, as your spiritual leaders and those who have invested in you, shouldn't we have that right all the more. And now, so as we read this, here's what I want to do, because we could easily be even more confused than we were at the end of chapter eight by what Paul is doing here in his logic. So let me do this. Let me take us back to verse three. So I think here, verse three is a key to unpacking the logic that Paul uses and employs throughout the rest of the section of 1 Corinthians 9. And so specifically, uh, this word defense here Commentators and scholars, these literary experts who have combed the scriptures on our behalf, have pointed out that this particular word defense here would have immediately evoked an image of the courtroom. They would have immediately invoked legal images for Paul's audience, the people in Corinth. And so Paul is writing here when he says, this is my defense to those who sit in judgment in me. If you were to close your eyes and think about a courtroom scene, you have three primary things that are going on. You have a judge that is sitting in the center to adjudicate the matter. You have a prosecutor who is asking all the questions and you have somebody who is sitting in the defense. They're sitting on the witness stand, right? And so you have this, Paul saying, I'm basically in the dock. I'm the one that's being on trial here for the exercise of my rights. He sees himself on this witness stand, attempting to justify to the prosecutors, the Corinthian church, the way that he is thinking and the way that he's operating with his rights. Now, check this out, check this out. Do you see what's happening here? Normally, a person who is on the defense in a courtroom is the one that is being asked all the questions, the one who's being interrogated by the prosecutor in an effort to get to the truth of the matter so that the judge can rule. 
But let me ask you a question. Who's asking all the questions here? Who's asking the questions? Audience participation, who's asking the questions? Paul, Paul. This is genius. Paul is saying he's the one that's on the defense, but he's acting as the prosecutor, asking all the questions of the Corinthian church. I love this. One scholar has pointed this out in such a vivid way how important this is to seeing Paul's logic. Roy Siampo, a Bible scholar, says this. Paul's use of legal language in this section is a remarkable rhetorical device which invites the Corinthians to consider his arguments very, very carefully. He says, this is not the kind of defense that we would expect someone to give in our legal system, rightfully so. Don't miss this. Rather, the rhetorical questions that Paul pegs them with are employed in such a fashion as to put the readers on the stand, so to speak. Being led by the inquisitor, Paul, through a series of questions whose required answers are clearly indicated in the Greek. Paul, oh, this, is, this is masterful. Paul is offering a defense that actually attacks the defenses of anyone who is opposing him. Do you see this? So actually what we discover in this passage is that the Corinthian church, the Christ followers in Corinth, are the ones who are actually on the stand. And they are forced into this defensive posture. Just look with me for a second at the interrogative questions that appear here, one by one, almost rapid fire. He's pelting these guys with these questions. So he asks first, am I not free? Am I not free? And the Corinthian church is forced to say, well, Paul, you have spoke extensively about the freedom that we all have in Jesus when we put faith in him. And you have, you have helped us to grow and you've sown this spiritual seed of the gospel. So no, Paul, you're, you're totally free. But that's actually part of the confusion here, Paul. You know that you're free. We know that you're free, but you act like a slave. Okay, well, am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? The Corinthian church is like, well, let's think about that. No, you're an apostle. You're the one that brought the message of Jesus to us. You embodied in your lifestyle and you're giving up of rights. Oh, shoot, for our sake. No, no, Paul, you, you're an apostle. You not only talked to us about Jesus, you showed us Jesus in your actions toward us and your sacrifice toward us. Well, don't we have the right to take a believing wife? Okay, of course you do, Paul. Again, that is part of the problem that we have with you here. You do have the right to take a believing wife, but for some reason, unbeknownst to us, you have deliberately laid down that right for another purpose. It's maddening. Well, is it only I and Barnabas who can't work for a living? Again, Paul, of course you have the right to work for a living. But we're confused by this because you continue to work for a living when you could be taking monetary compensation for us for what you do to spread the gospel. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Oh my gosh, Paul, are you serious? Nobody, right? Because the government is the one who pays the soldier. And again, this is why we're so perplexed by you, Paul. You don't take monetary support from us when you know that you could. Well, who plants a vineyard and doesn't eat the produce? I'm sure you didn't say it like that, but, but right. Okay, of course, Paul, if you plant a vineyard, you can expect to, okay, who tends a flock and doesn't drink the milk? Once again, Paul, you can, but why don't you do it? Doesn't the law say I can receive the material support? And you think at this point that they are just absolutely exasperated. But think with me here for a second. All of these questions that Paul asks, Paul knows that the response is he has every right to engage in everything he's asked about. But he has chosen, get this, in freedom 
in true freedom not to exercise those rights for a greater purpose. You see, what we have to see is in this imaginary courtroom, Paul is the freest person in there because he is the one who has complete authority and control over the use of his rights. Do you see that? He can claim a superior freedom precisely because he's not enslaved to use his rights. He is master over his rights, not vice versa. And so I think Paul wants us to see, he concludes first and foremost, I think something that could be said like this. Conclusion number one in this passage is this. Paul wants us to get that, man, true freedom in Christ is not being dragged around by your sense of entitlement and rights. No, true freedom in Christ involves or is mastering your rights to exercise the true freedom that Christ gives, to be able to look at whatever right you have and say, I can use it, but I'm free not to use it as well. And so for as much as Paul now, I think has really cogently and successfully argued for the way that he sees his rights, that he has freedom over them, we might still ask another really important question. Okay, so Paul, you, we know that you have freedom in Christ, and we know that that means you are mastering you are, have mastery over your rights. But what we still don't have is, Paul, what has compelled you or shifted your mode of thinking that you are able to see your rights in this way rather than the conventional ways that we tend to see our rights? Maybe we could better say it like this. What does Paul know implicitly about his rights, about rights as themselves, that has caused him to exercise these rights in such a peculiar or bizarre or maybe counterintuitive to us kind of way. What does Paul know? What shifted everything for Paul that allowed him to see things this way? All right, let me see if I can help us out on this one. I wanna give a little bit of an illustration or an analogy that actually comes from my own experience. So uh, when I was about 19 or 20 years old, uh, the people that were closest to me in life, the people who really cared for me and I had relationship with, so people like my parents and sometimes my sister, and no, I love you, Kelly, you're awesome. Um, but people like my parents, my sister, even my good friends, even those who uh, I went to school with, uh, there was this period in my life that they all started to become super concerned about me and my welfare. And so this was primarily because my behavior almost overnight became exceedingly, exceedingly bizarre for me. Okay, so here's, here's what you need to know. Throughout my teenage years, I had kind of established uh, a certain identity that had constituted normal for me. Certain behaviors that when people saw me exercising those behaviors, they'd have been like, Seth's doing well. He's good. He's reached equilibrium. He's in homeostasis, right? Like, so, like certain behaviors, and uh, just a couple of those behaviors, just for illustration or example's sake. So, one behavior was uh, everybody knew that I really was a nerd. I was a super, super dork, okay? And uh, I was a nerd and I loved school. My favorite subjects were history, especially American history, as you couldn't already tell, right? So, American history and uh, literature, just love that kind of stuff. Love the arts, maybe more than the sciences. No big deal if you're a science nerd, but I was an art nerd. And so, uh, yeah, I just loved school. I just loved hitting the books. I loved learning, learning, learning. Another thing that you need to know about me, and this is maybe a little embarrassing, but uh, I'm going to share it with you because I love you guys. You know I love you after I share this, okay? There was about a six-year period, uh, a couple years at the end of middle school and throughout my high school career, I guess you could say, where 
I only ever wore khakis. <laughs> yeah, no, did somebody clap? <laughs> that is one that I never expected for you to clap at that. Yeah, so like I may have expected an amen or something like that or whatever, but so I only ever wore khakis. Never wore blue jeans. I'm telling you, six years straight, never wore blue jeans. I can neither confirm nor deny, by the way, that the khakis, some of the khakis were pleated. Just not going to go there, okay? So, so only ever wore blue jeans. Another thing you need to know about me is uh, that I actually didn't need a curfew. My parents put a curfew on me at 10 o'clock, but they didn't need it because I was regularly in the house and in bed reading a book by like 9 or 9.15, didn't need a curfew. One other thing that you need to know about me, kind of a, a behavioral trait or characteristic, was that, dude, I rocked the 1950s good boy comb over. Like it was, it, was, it was epic, right? So I rocked all this stuff. And so all of these things just kind of constituted normal for me in that period of my life. So you can imagine then that all the key relationships that I had in my life began to express a deep concern for me when, again, almost... Overnight, my pants went from khaki to blue all the time. Like, wait a minute, what's going on with Seth? Where'd the pleats go? What's going on? And that was accompanied by me staying out till well past one or two in the morning almost every night. Guys, there was about a three-week period where I didn't come home before 2.30, and one of those nights, I didn't arrive home until 5.30 in the morning. And if that wasn't enough, um, I had, to the horror of my parents, in the middle of my sophomore year, I dropped out of college. I dropped out of college. My parents are like, who is this devil? Like, what's going on? What's happening? And if that weren't enough, my 1950s good boy comb over went from, if you can imagine that, it went from 1950s good boy to, oh, Lord, help me, this. It's even bigger up there, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, that's a problem. Yeah. But think, okay, just for the record, this is the early 2000s, so this is all kinds of hot. I'm just saying. All right. But you can see, like, I'm wearing jeans, and I call this, by the way, my John Lennon face, you know, the wire rim glasses. I, I had somebody in the previous service was like, I literally thought you put a picture of John Lennon up there when you put this up. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I, I grew my hair out long. And so you can, again, imagine the people who were closest to me in my life. They're like, what's this crisis? What is happening to this young man? This kid's going off the rails. Because everything we know about him is morphing into, well, this. <laughs> so, guys, on the surface, on the surface, all of this strange and unorthodox behavior made absolutely no sense. My family legit thought I was going off the rails. But however, all these changes of behavior made all the sense in the world if you knew one thing that happened to me at the age of 19 that absolutely transformed my life, absolutely transformed my life. You see, if you would have known that at the age of 19 that this guy met a girl... Yeah, yeah. You'd have known everything you needed to know about the changes that were occurring in my life. Because if you knew the kind of relationship that I was developing with this girl who will later become my wife, her name is Sarah, if you know her, if you would have known that, you would have known that, well, she likes blue jeans. 
she likes bell-bottom blue jeans because her dad was straight out of 1970s flower child world. Like, <laughs> so I was rocking the bell-bottoms, right? You, you would have known, right, that she loves a man with long hair, which she still loves me, it's okay, but she, and you would have known that I would have given anything for her to run her fingers through my long locks, you know, like that. And you would have, you would have absolutely understood why. I would want to spend every moment of the evening, of the late night, and into the dawn of the next day just being with her, spending time with her, learning who she was, learning to grow in the love that we had developed together during that time period. See, this single shift told you everything that you needed to know about the radical changes that were on the surface level just inexplicable otherwise. So let me ask you guys, what was it then that fundamentally changed for Paul? What was it that fundamentally changed that reorganized and revolutionized the way that he viewed what his rights were? I'll tell you what, it's not that Paul met a girl. <laughs> Who did Paul meet? <laughs> Jesus. Paul met the risen and resurrected Lord who had sacrificed everything for him. The Lord who laid down his rights, his prerogatives, and his privileges so that Paul could know him and come into the life that God desired for him. Man, as Paul will say in another letter in an autobiographical section, he says, guys, whatever gain that I felt that I had in my former life, Whatever gain that I had, I now count as loss next to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. I consider everything from that former life that I thought was a plus, I consider that garbage, refuse, trash next to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Paul says, I want to know Christ in the power of his resurrection and I want to share in his sufferings. Who says that? Who says that they want to share in the sufferings of a crucified Messiah? But Paul says, knowing Christ, I want to share in his sufferings. I want to become like him in his death so that by any means possible, I might attain the resurrection from the dead. Life with this Jesus for all eternity. Guys, Jesus was the one who changed everything about Paul's life, his worldview, his perspective, his pursuits, including revolutionizing Paul's vision for what rights are and why they're given to us. And you could see this right here in verse 12. What does Paul actually conclude after the passage we read? He says, we didn't use this right we didn't employ these rights. Why? Because we have mastery over them. Why? But why didn't it use these? On the contrary, he says, we will put up with anything, including the incessant pushback from the Corinthian congregation. We'll put up with anything. Why? Rather than hinder or put a stumbling block or an obstacle or to obscure Jesus. 
We put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news about who Jesus is and what he has come to do. The gospel, the message of the love of Jesus expressed through his sacrificial death to bring broken and rebellious human beings back into a genuine relationship with God. The gospel, Jesus Christ himself, made all the difference. Paul is going to put up with anything if it means making Jesus clear and accessible. Jesus clear and accessible. And not only has Paul's purpose been revolutionized by the gospel in this, his view of what rights really are has also been utterly changed by this relationship, by this very same gospel. So maybe we could put it this way. I think this is what Paul realized. Not only that freedom in Christ means that he has mastery over his rights, But I think Paul saw this in light of the gospel and his relationship with Jesus. Conclusion number two. I think he's telling us, guys, especially if you're a follower of Jesus, your rights are not your own. Your rights are resources. And they're not even your resources. Your rights are Jesus, the Lord's resources handed over to you so that he can be made clear to people who are hurting and need the hope of the relationship with him. Your rights are resources. Rights are a part of the wonderful set of gifts that Jesus graciously pours on those who pledge their lives to him by faith and follow him. Rights are given to provide us opportunities, opportunities to make Jesus's true character and love vivid and tangible to the world around us. How does the world see Jesus when he's not living here on the planet in bodily form? They see Jesus when we do the things that Jesus did, including and especially laying down our rights so that he can be made famous. That before we would even think about employing a personal right, we would first, as followers of Jesus, think about whether the use of that right would hinder or promote the gospel, whether our acts would glorify Jesus and make him clear to people, or whether they would obscure him and merely stain or tarnish his reputation. Paul knows that your rights are resources. And the gospel is the thing that changed the dynamic for him completely. Now, even in light of this, I know some of us might be thinking, I I think the same thing on occasion. said, I think this is great. I think you're right. This is what occurred with Paul. But that, for me, in my life, is easier said than done, isn't it? Because if you're like me, right, I don't often do the very thing that we're talking about. I feel powerless And I feel incapable to find myself in mastery over my rights or to see that my rights are not even my own. They're to be pledged to Jesus for his sake. And if that's you, I get it. I wrestle with the same thing. But if that's you, I actually have more good news for you. I have more good news for you. Because I think the reality is that Jesus never demands anything from you that he doesn't, number one, give you the power to do as you develop a deepening relationship with him. Jesus never demands anything of you that he doesn't give you the power to do and also hasn't already done for you as your example. He never asks you to do things that he won't give you the power to do or hasn't already done for you. And so guys, I think sometimes the antidote to our frustration, like why isn't this occurring in my life, 
Sometimes I think the antidote to our failures isn't about trying harder. It's not about mustering enough energy or engendering or manufacturing some power that we would have within us to achieve the vision for our lives that Paul is giving us here. And I actually think the antidote is not to do that, but the antidote is instead to sit at the feet of Jesus and behold him and who he is with discipline and constancy. And to allow things like scripture's truth about who Jesus really is to continue to be our constant reminder. It's the reason why we would desire as followers of Jesus to soak in the word of God every day. To bask in visions of Jesus that are given all over scripture, but are especially vivid in places like Philippians 2. Paul says, in your relationships with one another, you should have the same mindset as Christ Jesus who Christ, being in very nature God, notice, with all the privileges, the rights, the freedoms, the liberties, and the prerogatives that come from being God over this whole creation. Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Instead of exercising his right to wipe us out, he made himself nothing laying down his rights, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man. Jesus, he's in front of us in this text. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him. He said, this is the kind of human being that I designed to reflect me all along. So God exalts him to the highest place, to the King of kings and Lord of lords, and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue would acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I think Paul knew that in order to have freedom and mastery over our rights, in order to see rights as resources, we need to appeal to the power of the relationship and keep that relationship as our central focus constantly. That's what I think Paul has to say about what God thinks of our rights and their usage. And so as we conclude, and as I invite the band up, we might be asking, okay, I get what you're saying. I understand where you're going. I see what Paul is indicating now, but how might this work out practically, right? How could we take each of us a step in the right direction in this area? Now, listen, rights are complicated things. It's a complicated conversation. And I also believe that whatever step that Jesus might want to have you in specific take today is not necessarily conditioned on a a mathematical equation where we lay out all the steps to get to a mindset that's like this. And so rather than give you a couple of practical suggestions, I thought I would just give you an opportunity to reflect with Jesus to spend some time with Jesus. So as we sing and as the band plays, as we worship together, that maybe you could just begin to ask some of these questions to Jesus himself as we do that. And maybe even after you leave here today to continue to attempt to put Jesus in front of your focus and allow the light of his convicting truth to change you, to continue to be operative in you asking and opening your heart to him. So maybe a question you would ask is, what source of power is governing my exercise of rights? Have I thought or assumed that the vision and the life that Jesus wants for me is preconditioned on me employing my own power? 
And whether you're not a follower of Jesus, which if you're not a follower of Jesus and you are gripped by this vision of a Lord who would die for you, a God who would die for you, and you know that the life that he's calling you to is similar, man, if you're not a follower of Jesus, just know that there is no amount of power or effort that you could exert, but that's the beauty of the gospel and the grace of Jesus and what he's done for you. You simply need to bring yourself and he will give you the power. He will do the rest. My encouragement to you, if you're not a follower of Jesus, is put your trust in Christ. Follow him by faith. And just watch what he does by his Holy Spirit to transform you into the person he longs for you to be. But even if we are a follower of Jesus, we can find moments and times where we drift away from the power of the relationship and assume that we can do this thing on our own. My question to you is, would you just open your heart to Jesus, you and him in this time? What source of power, Jesus, is governing my exercise of rights. Maybe another question is, where is Jesus's character obscured? Because I might be insisting on my rights. Where might it be obscured? Now listen, I just want to toss this out there, okay? What about social media on this one? Okay, what about social media? Now listen, I don't have anyone in mind. None of your faces are in my head. I'm not pointing any of the fingers. Here's what I'm going to invite you to do. Can you just brainstorm with me for a second? In fact, I don't have anyone in my mind and I'm not pointing fingers, so I'm literally going to close my eyes. I just want you to think out loud with me for a second, okay? What, or is it possible, is it possible to mar the reputation of Jesus by blasting Facebook with uncharitable political opinions that are levied against the people who sit on the opposite side of the political aisle than us. I don't have anyone in my mind. Just asking, is it possible that we could obscure the true Lord of the world by exercising our right and our privilege to post that thing on Facebook? Is it possible? Guys, we have the right to do that, don't we? We have this amazing privilege in our country to public discourse. We could do that. But is it possible that that act could cost us an opportunity to make Jesus make sense? Is that possible? Is that possible? Is it possible that it would cost us clarity in demonstrating the Jesus that we are not only called to preach, but to embody and reflect in our actions? Is it possible? Following questions, who truly owns my rights? Maybe ask Jesus, who dictates what I do with my rights? And then finally, I love this question. What relationships, Jesus, in my life could be transformed if I were to embrace your power and this truth to lay down my rights? Guys, think about it. Some of you are in the thick of it in key relationships in your life. What would change if you open yourself up to the power of Jesus to lay your life down for your marriage, what would change? What could Jesus do in that situation? If you allowed his life and his love and his understanding of what your rights are for, that maybe just maybe you laying down your right for your spouse is nothing short of showing your spouse that Jesus has laid down his life for them would change? What would change with your kids? What would change in your neighborhood? What would change with your coworkers? What would change in these relationships that we have in our natural path of life? My encouragement is just ask Jesus the question. Jesus, what relationships could be transformed by this truth? Let's pray together.
Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for this amazing yet difficult and complicated truth that we hear from Paul. We see how his life was transformed, and we read that our rights are no longer our own. They're yours. They're resources. And that we can have genuine, true, and lasting freedom because of what you have done. We can master our rights and see them as gospel opportunities. So Jesus, I just want to pray. Holy Spirit, I want to pray that for every single person in this room, would you help us to unpack our own situation, to unfold our lives, to ask these questions or questions that are similar to this, and to truly invite you into our situation in the way we use our rights. Jesus, we are so thankful that you are the one that went before us. We are so thankful that the power is not ours, it's yours. So we are asking that you would be our vision and our focus, that we would say yes to you and what you're calling us to. Jesus, we need your help, we need your power to do all of it. And so we're asking, I'm asking for that for me and everybody in this room today. Just pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.